privilege to be with you guys this morning, especially to share the Word of God, and in particular, this text. So, so as he mentioned, I'm the executive director of Small Things, which is a, uh, we're a food nonprofit that distributes food to about 80 food pantries across the Philadelphia region as we battle food insecurity and poverty. And our name is actually inspired by Mother Teresa that says you can do no great things, but only small things with great love. We believe that this is the value that we have, that we believe there's no act of service that goes unrecognized, and acts of service actually are acts of love. And that if we actually all come together and we serve together and we love together, that we can actually make a huge impact in Philadelphia. And not only that, but when we come together, we create community. The people that serve, the people we serve with, the churches, the nonprofit partners, that we could really change the landscape of Philadelphia if we decide to work together. Um, so one more quick, just to give you a quick background to how Small Things started, and then I'll get right into the sermon. So Small Things originally was started as Easter Outreach, which was a collaborative effort of local churches that was started by Liberty River Wards in Fishtown, which Re uh, Re Dr. Reverend Dr. Ryan Egley uh, actually uh, helped start uh, up there in uh, the River Wards back in 2010. Well, it grew its efforts to 2019, where it was about 90 churches uh, 40,000 me 40, meals that were distributed in 2019. And then the COVID-19 pandemic hit, and we were in the midst of gathering together to serve for the Easter season, and we were faced with a decision. What do we do? Do we like just not do the project? Do we just do Easter? And we really were forced, not forced into, but God directed us into uh, going from a one-time-a-year event to a six-day-week distributor. And during COVID, you guys played an immense role. Renewal Church, you delivered about 450 meals to senior citizens weekly in the West Philadelphia area. And you volunteered at many other sites. But I, I just always remember seeing a great joy of seeing your pastors come up and delivering with their children and just the sense of community. Um, then this past year, small things, as we've established ourselves in a warehouse, we have staffing now, we have a whole entire operation, we uh, distributed 8,000, 8, 8, 8 million pounds of food across Philadelphia with about our 80 partners and hundreds of churches that volunteer and involved in other ways. So really, I just wanted to thank you guys for your involvement in that, your ongoing efforts to support the work that we do, but also to say, like, we really can make a difference. And we'll look at in this text this morning of, about injustice and how Philadelphia is divided and how there's fracturings and how there's things that we are called to do as the church, Christians, to be able to serve the needs of the Philadelphia region. So in the passage this morning, there's actually two groups that we're going to be looking at. So in chapter 4, the group is actually traveling land, traveling merchants. And then the other group uh, in chapter 5 is actually uh, wealthy landowners. So it's traveling merchants and wealthy landowners. Uh, one commentator had this to say about this. In the Roman Empire, people acquired wealth in two ways. They were either landowners with high social status who profited from, profited from crops raised by tenant farmers or slaves, or they were merchants. James talks to both of these groups today. So what we're, the question that we're going to answer this morning is this. How does faith in Jesus shape a community of justice? So I'll say it one more time. How does faith in Jesus shape a community of justice. Let's take a minute to pray, 
to invite the presence of God to be with us this morning, to open up our minds, our hearts, and our souls to his word. Lord, before this world days began, your word was in the beginning, and it was with you, and it was you. The mystery that brings us to our knees, yet today you allow us to open your word and to know you better. So we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and give us hearts open to your spirit as we seek you. Amen. So we want to look at the question, how does faith in Jesus shape a community of justice? The first idea, the first point that I'm going to really focus on just the verses in chapter 4 is first, it changes our posture towards the world. So it changes the way we approach life fundamentally. So it's interesting, the very opening words, it says, you who say, and uh, this would have been like, a, this would have been like, a, in a sense, it was like an eye-opening experience. The people that are hearing these words, when they hear you, that, you who say, they would have thought of it this way. We can imagine that the original audience would have heard the formula and thought immediately, oh no, here it comes. In these verses, James targets wealthy merchants who travel and make money for their own benefit without a benefit for others and without a thought of their own mortality. One commentator had those words to say about this passage, pretty powerful. And it says in in verse 13, today or tomorrow, I will do. I will spend a year. I will make money. So what is actually wrong with those statements? It's not really wrong to say, hey, I'm going to do this tomorrow. I'm going to go here. I'm going to do that. These traveling merchants thought they were in control. They had this posture of self-sufficiency on themselves, their skills, their gifts, their abilities. It brings to mind a famous poem from William Ernest Hentley in the 1800s that says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I am in charge. I got this. I'm going to make it happen. Regardless of myself and the people around me. What James was doing in the following verses is he actually was smacking these people in the face. It would have been like a real wide open, like, boom, here it comes. You think you're going to do these things, but you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life but a vapor, but a mist? Instead, you should say, if the Lord wishes. This is you boasting in your arrogance. As human beings, we are limited. We are finite. How much control do we really think that we have in our life? The reality is that all of us are going to die. I know that's like mind-blowing, but I just think about a couple of examples. So think about this. You get a phone call that someone that you knew passed away that you just had coffee with or were hanging out with last week. You you get in a car accident. Didn't think that was going to happen that day. You get fired unexpectedly. I think about a phone call that just happened this week. One of my best friends calls me, and his brother 
um, was in prison and he was diagnosed with cancer and he was going through cancer treatments. And my friend just assumed that like the cancer was minimal and they're doing the treatments, he's going to be fine. He gets the call that his brother actually died in prison alone with no family, no, no one around him. And he was devastated. We don't know what tomorrow brings, but we know someone who does. The God of the universe. A famous reformer thinker named Abraham Kuyper says this, There is not one square inch of the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, Mine. Mine. The world belongs to God. The world belongs to the God of the universe. Not to us. We may feel that way sometimes in our life, that it belongs to us. We may feel like we're in charge some days. We may even go after it. Quick disclaimer. I'm not going to get into suffering and God's like divine control and all those things. You guys have pastors at your church. Talk, talk, you can talk to them about that. But what I'm trying to make the point here is the point that I'm trying to make is that God is in control. And God has a, he has a vision for the future. He has a vision for each of your lives. And what we want to do is we want to accept and acknowledge that. Our problem is that we need to move from this self-sufficiency or from self-dependence to God-dependence. We are not in control. I'm going to say it one more time because I needed to hear this as I was studying for the sermon. I am not in control. The reality is this is a painful pill to swallow. There may be things that have happened to you that have forced you to take control in your life. You may have been hurt. You may have been operating on self-sufficiency for so long that you don't know another way. The only way you know is to control your life. The shocking reality is that it is God, not us, in control. And he is a good God, hear those words. The God is expressed in Jesus is a good God who can be trusted. So what do we need to do? We need to learn to let go. We need to learn to let go of control. Faith in Jesus changes our posture to the world as we learn to humbly surrender control and trust God with the outcome of our life. We learn to hold on to things with an open hand, not a clenched fist. It is so like I'm squeezing my hands really hard and I can do it and sometimes it actually feels good. But it's so much easier to open yourself up and to let go. You may feel vulnerable, but we have a God that we can trust in Jesus, a good God. And the reality is if we focus on being on control 
in control of like, and being in control can be like, I mean, look, I'm a parent. It can be trying to control your kids, trying to control your spouse, trying to control your job, trying to control your bank account, trying to control your relationship status. There can be a million things that we put at the center of our life. And we've read it in the Westminster Catechism. We make that thing an idol. We make that thing the center point of our life. And the goal becomes more important than anything else. It becomes more important than our family, more important than our mental health, more important than our physical health. It becomes the most important object that we are going after. And I just think about this. So I was a pastor um, in Center City, Philadelphia, and I met with tons of people that are very high performing, go to like the best schools, way smarter than I am, and uh, are super engaged in their careers and building their careers and sacrificing so much. I was meeting with a woman one time, and I remember her sharing. She was really climbing the ladder really quickly and was super successful. And like from the professional world, she's doing awesome. She's crushing it from all levels. She told me she was falling apart. She was having panic attacks. She wasn't eating. Her stomach was, she was losing weight. She was physically, mentally, and emotionally deteriorating because the pressure that she put on herself to perform because the most important thing to her in her life was career success. She quit her job and started a new way of life. And today, I can tell you, I know this person really well, her life is amazing. So how can we begin to do this? Because that's an extreme example. I just was making a point. To me, prayer is one of the best ways that we can acknowledge that we're not in control. So there's a couple of like sample prayers. Uh, one that Jesus taught us. It's a good place to start if you're struggling with praying. Our Father in heaven. Just that phrase, by acknowledging that our Father is in heaven, we are acknowledging that we are not the one that is in control, that there is a God above us that rules and reigns in heaven. So just saying the word, our Father in heaven, is an admission of surrender. It's allowing us to let go of control. Then if we take it to the next step, what happens if the next step is, our Father in heaven, your will be done, not mine. That may mean not getting that job. That may mean things that we think that we need and think that we want that are not ours. Your will be done. Dangerous prayer to pray, but a powerful prayer for us. Our Father in heaven, your will be done. I'm going to give you a simpler prayer that saved my life on multiple occasions. So those that, that, don't, that don't know me, uh, I'm, I'm in recovery 17 years, heroin addict, been on the methadone clinic over on Parkside Ave right in West Philadelphia. Uh, I have a pretty rough story. And when I got into recovery, there's a simple prayer that, that's taught. It's called the serenity prayer. Some of you may be familiar with it. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. God, give me the peace, the serenity to accept things in my life that I can't change, that I have no control over. Help me. The courage for the things that I need to own up to, that I need to face, that I need to change to do them. And give me wisdom to know the difference between those two things. What are the things I can change? What are the things I can't? Help me. Help me. 
I've said that prayer so many times. I pray it on the way down here. I pray it all the time. I get up here, I'm like, God, please help. <laughs> Your will, not mine. Be done. So a practice of prayer can help to shift a dependence from self to a dependence on God. So prayer, it's a very simple practice. It changes the posture to the world. Instead of me going out, I'm going to go here, I'm going to do that, I'm going to make this money. That's it, like in James. Say, hold on, Lord, if you will, I have a plan. If it lines up with your plan, so be it, but I'm going to surrender I'm going to trust you. My posture shifts to humility. We can live what we call as free from being attached to the things that drive us when we ask God to come into our life. So I'm going to make a quick note on the last verse because it's a little, it's anyone who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it commits sin. So I'm going to quote a commentator because he like summed it up super concise. What is the right thing to do? Do God's will. Begin to think of others besides yourselves. For those engaged in business transactions like the traveling merchants in James 4, this means stop boasting, show humility in your dealings with others, stop pretending that you rule the universe, pay attention to where your profits go, and remember that your chief religious duty is to care for the widows and the orphans and the most vulnerable members of society. Do not show favoritism to the rich, but show mercy to your neighbors and yourself. Pay fair wages to your workers and pay them on time. So faith in Jesus changes our posture to the world, allows us to let go of control, and we can begin to trust God with our life, and with our works. With our life, we trust you to care for me. And with our works, what we do. And we're going to learn now is like what we, what our works and how we shape and how we use our power and our privilege. Because that's the second point. The second point is, <laughs> now our second point is how does faith in Jesus, it will, faith in Jesus, how do we shape a community of justice? It will change the way we use our power and our privilege. So our posture is changed from one of dependence on self to dependence on God. Now we are looking to see what do we do with the power and privilege that we have. James, and this is this passage, he really, he really comes in pretty hard. And, and trust me, we're going to talk about the gospel and the good news of Jesus and his self-sacrificial love. But I think it's important for us to hear how he says. He, so he does the same thing. Come now. In verse 4.13, come now. In verse 5.1, come now. It's like the same smack in the face. But in 5.1, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty intense. I mean, I'm just going to read through a couple of the things. Your riches have rotted. Your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted. The rust is evidence against you. It will eat your flesh. That sounds a little crazy. You've laid up your treasure during the last days. One of the things I'm just going to mention briefly is, in reality, do we need all the things that we have? Like, do we need all the stuff that we have in our life? We accumulate tons of things. And the question we just need to all ask ourselves is, do we really need everything that we have? Because the reality is the same way that our goals 
and our aspirations and like where we want to go. Like I shared the story with that woman that like her life was falling apart because of her being driven. The same thing can happen in the pursuit and consumption of things. Money, we can try. We never can have enough. You know what I mean? How much savings do we need? How much, how much comfort do we need? Are we storing up our treasures? Are we trying to find comfort and support in the things that we have in our life? Do we have a bad day and go on Amazon and spend like $200 just by clicking a button for no reason at all and then the stuff shows up and you're wondering why you ordered it? Never happened to any of you, right? Never. No one's ever done that? Okay, I didn't think so. I must be alone. Um, all of these things have their proper place, like things, and I'm not trying to bat, like talk bad about having stuff. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm just trying to say they need to be ordered in their proper place. And I think John Calvin, as he talks about this passage, really kind of nails the point of what's happening God did not appoint gold to go to waste or clothes to be eaten by moss, but he intended these things to sustain human life. So these things are to sustain human life, not to destroy human life. And it's like as we begin to see, as we start to, to gather and acquire all of these things to attach our identity to them, they actually begin to eat us from the inside out. This hollowness, this fakeness, and trying to fix, trying to let, trying to gather stuff actually can consume us and cause harm to us. But not only can it cause harm to us, because check this out. This is something that I learned and I'm still continuing to learn and I fail. You could talk, ask my wife or any of my children. The more selfish I am, I affect the people around me in a negative way. Does that make sense? If I'm only thinking about myself and I'm hurting myself sometimes in the ways, the things that I'm going after, I also am affecting the people around me. And that's where this passage kind of takes a turn. And it says, like, not only acquiring and consuming those things is affecting you, but you actually are oppressing other people as you try to acquire these things. So what were they doing wrong? The wages you've kept from the workers. They cry out to the Lord of hosts. You've lived on earth in luxury and pleasure. You've nourished your hearts in the day of slaughter. You condemned and murdered the righteous one. Listen, the wages of the laborers who mowed the fields which you have kept back by fraud cry out. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Oh, we'll talk about the good news of how God hears the cries of the oppressed. But let's first take a look at a couple of examples of cries that I know God hears. So the first is, and I'm not going to go into like deep detail of these. I mean, each one of these could be like a whole thing. I'm just trying to give examples so we can frame the way that systems of oppression God cares about people that are oppressed. So the first one is we have racism. And I'm just going to give one example, uh, and we're going to talk about redlining very briefly. We're not going to talk about gentrification, but we'll talk about redlining and the way that certain people were pushed into certain neighborhoods and certain people were given access to better loans than others based upon skin color. And this Philadelphia was built on that. And one more, the transit system. 
they, they built like the regional rail to go a certain way and they built scepter routes to go a certain way based upon neighborhood and race to keep certain people out. The city of Philadelphia was built on that foundation. God hears those cries. And the economic inequality in Philadelphia. We are the largest big city, 25%, the largest big city in deep poverty. There is a gigantic divide between rich and poor. And it's not okay. And God hears the cries. Another one that actually, this is probably more relevant to the West Coast, but actually Kennett Square and potentially New Jersey, uh, like migrant, migrant workers and laborers, day laborers that farm. You're like, oh, well, how does that affect me? Like, I don't, well, because the, the food that you buy in the supermarket, someone is oppressed as they work the field, so you're buying fruit and vegetables at a cheaper price, and someone's suffering on the other side, God hears the cries of the oppressed. Minimum wage jobs. Well, why don't we just pay them 10 bucks? Well, 15. Think about, think about this, just anyone that's in your right mind. Think if you make $15 an hour, okay, and you work 35 hours a week and you got two kids at home. And that's $15 an hour. That's not even the minimum wage. That's what we're, that's what we're fighting and advocating for. You can barely provide for your family. Paying jobs that are fair and just, God hears those cries. Affordable housing. You talk about what does it cost to purchase a house and pay a mortgage versus what does it cost to rent. And you're sitting here, go and look what it costs. Go, go home today, or you actually a lot of you probably know trying to rent around here. Imagine if you're a family that can't afford to buy a house and you're trying to rent now and your rent's higher than what a mortgage would cost, but you don't have the income to buy a house. We need affordable housing in the city of Philadelphia. We need to give access to affordable housing. God hears those cries. Last one, quickly. Education. Every child in Philadelphia should have access to adequate education and have the opportunities to be able to better their life through a good school system. God hears those cries of those children that have to go to underfunded and under-resourced schools that can't receive the same education that maybe some of the kids in the suburbs receive. God hears those cries. God hears the cries of the oppressed, but he doesn't just stay where he is. He acts. God acts. God steps into human life in Jesus, suffers, dies, and rises again. He takes his power and his privilege that he had as the God of the universe, and he gives it away for the benefit of me, you, and all of those cries that I just mentioned. One of the best, not one of the best, one of my favorite scripture passages that depicts this is in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. I'm going to read it right now. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. 
You could use that word grass, could also be something that, that was, uh, he didn't use to be used to his advantage, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him in every way, more highly, and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We follow in this glorious example and embodiment of self-emptying, descending into the depths of death as the God of the universe, taking his power and his privilege and tossing it aside to benefit all of us and to benefit the world. Because God, because this is what, this is the, that's the foundation on what Christianity is built on, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because that's the reality, that's who we follow, that's who we are, that's what this is. That's what this is. That's, that's why we're here today. We need to do the same thing. <laughs> so it's crazy to think that, right? What does it mean to give, 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 give it away? Give away your power. Give away your privilege. Use it for good. What would that look like? That's how we become a community of justice. We change our posture. We become humble. We trust God. And then we use our power and our privilege for the benefits of others. Another uh, famous uh, person that focused on the way that we engage as missionaries in a context, which means someone that's sent into a neighborhood or, or a community or, or overseas, uh, is a guy named Leslie Newbegin. And in his book, The Open Secret, he talks about acts of compassion like this, because this is central to what the good news is. Acts of compassion, therefore, acts by which the church tries to share in and bear the pain of those who suffer, are not an escape from the real business of fighting for liberation or an alternative to it. They are the authentic part of the critic of the Lamb, which is the critic, the critic of Jesus. That these actually, these embodying suffering for the benefit of others is actually what it means to be a Christian. That's what acts of compassion are. It's part of the game. It's part of the game. It's part of what you sign up for. And it's crazy to think about it. But to be a community of justice, we need to have faith in Jesus that changes our posture to one of humility and dependence on God that then shapes how we use our power and our privilege for the benefit of others. Jesus calls us to join in this resurrection work of reconstructing a broken world. So at the end of the day, the question that I had to ask myself after I was studying this passage was how serious am I about following Jesus? I asked myself that question. I was like, what, what, how serious am I? I'm reading these words, and I, you guys assigned me the text. I'm reading them, and I'm like, man, I'm like, 
And I'm like, what? I'm like, I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, this is, this is tough stuff. But then I'm like, wait, God is a God of compassion and mercy and justice. And he wants to see rights fixed. It's glorious to join into something like that, even if I got to give up a little bit of my comfort. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. We are talking about a God who gives up everything. And if we took it seriously, if Christians in Philadelphia took it seriously, we could change the world. Or at least start by changing our city. And those things that I mentioned, and the list goes on and on. I was only able to give a very brief snapshot of injustice in Philadelphia. It's not hard. My heart breaks for the shooting on South Street. I open up my app this morning, the Inquirer, and I'm thinking I'm going to read the Sunday paper and like maybe check in on some Phillies. And I'm sitting here reading about 11 people shot, three, two, two or three dead, and who knows what's going on down, at, down on South Street last night at like 1130. Wow. It's crazy. But God acts. In Jesus. So I'm going to do, so Ryan told me at the end of the sermon, you kind of do a little reflection. And I, ha I have one, so my life was, so obviously I was a heroin addict. I got clean, got connected to a church, started to read the Bible. My life changed. But then I, uh, I embarked on a spiritual journey called the Spiritual Exercises of Ignatius of Loyola. I guess it was about eight years ago, seven, eight, nine years ago. I met Father Rich, who's a Catholic Jesuit priest who's my man and who loves Jesus way more than I, I could, but uh, I follow his example. And uh, in the uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola, who was a 15th century person who converted to, to, to become a follower of Jesus, wrote this kind of manual on the spiritual life. And in these exercises, it's like a 40-week journey you take. Um, he has a couple of reflections and I called Father Rich, and I was like, Father Rich, I'm like, I want to I try to like do a reflection to close, because I think it helps us to think about what the text is about. And I had this one, and he was like, yeah, don't use that one. He was like, use this one. And I'm like, all right, thank you, Father Rich. So this is Father Rich's suggestion. And it's called The Contemplation on the Love of God. We think about injustice, our heart breaks, God acts. The first, so it's going to be two parts and then we're going to take some silence. We're going to allow the Spirit of God to work. And then I'll close us in prayer. So the first one is love ought to manifest itself more in deeds than by words. Okay? So love ought to manifest itself more in deeds than words. So love is actually an action. It's something that we participate in. It's something that we move towards. So that's the first one. I'll give you a, a follow-up, a thing to think about. And the second one, which is actually very interesting, love uh, consists in mutual communication between two persons. So love consists mutual communication between two persons. So think about it this way. Just as the love between two persons is marked by giving and receiving, the love we share with God has the same mutuality. God wants us as friends. 
God wants to be known by us. These divine desires are the sources of our desire to know, love, and serve God. So in this contemplation, what we want to do is we want to first consider how God loves us into existence, and he sustains us in that love. All of this is possible because God loves us first. This love is a natural overflow into the world that we inhabit. So, two points. Love ought to manifest itself more in deeds than by words. So think about this week. As I went through a list, you could use one of the things, but think about a couple of things. One, how can your, how, what's an action you can take to change your posture towards God and the world? So what's a way that you can have some humility and become more dependent on God? Think about that. What's an action you can take? And then think about one thing you can do for someone a neighbor, a friend, someone from the church, and we're going to take some silence to allow the Spirit to work. And then the second one, you actually can't really do anything for anyone if we're not connected to the love of God. So what can you do for that relationship this week where you can enjoy the love that God has for you? Think about this as a beautiful picture. So I like the idea of friendship as I think about it as a companion on a journey. Have you ever journeyed with someone? And that could be through life, a friend that you have, and they call you, and there's just this connection because you've been through so much together. You have this, like, jewel. You're like, man, I remember when all that stuff in my life happened, and I talked to you and cried on the phone every day, and now it's like 10 years later. That stuff isn't happening, but we're still connected. And you have this joy and this connection to that person, even though there may, there may be some distance sometimes. That's the kind of relationship that God wants with us. He wants to walk through life and share his divine love with us so that we can become an agent of God's divine love in the world. That's how we become a community of justice, is we embody God's love. So let's take a minute to reflect on those two points. Love consists itself more in deeds than words, and love is this mutual communication between two persons.
Let us take a moment and pray. Gracious God, as you meet us in our weakness and our vulnerability, we pray that we can come to know and love the resurrected Jesus who will change us from the inside out. We know that being more dependent on you will change the way we hold our life and the things that we do and where we spend our time and resources. We trust you, Lord, to help us. God, we also come before you and we pray, how can we really be a community of justice that embodies your love, that is in communion with you as your love would overflow, your generosity would overflow into the world and transform lives. That injustices will end. Things that are wrong will be made right. We can embody this by loving our neighbors, by caring for our families, by being good friends, but also by engaging in some of the real issues in the city of Philadelphia. Lord, we pray for your guidance. We pray that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.